Hello and welcome to this episode of the Coaching Podcast from British Canoeing Awarding Body. Hi everyone and uh, welcome to the British Canoeing Awarding Body Coaching Podcast. Uh, my name is Lee Pooley, I'm the Director of Coaching and Qualifications and today we're here to talk around the most recent research that we've done at uh, British Canoeing around the effects of offshore winds to stand up paddle borders. And I'm absolutely delighted that we've got hold of the researcher today. So um, welcome, Darren. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for having me. Probably just to start it off, really, uh, this particular podcast is let's let's drill into a little bit about your your background and your experience and, and why you were the right person to do this particular research. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, my name's uh, Darren Sherwood. I've been paddleboarding. I was just working it out, getting ready uh, in preparation for, for this podcast. And I got my first board back in 2008. So that's 15 years ago. So I, I can't work out if that makes me experienced or just old. So uh, it's probably uh, probably a little bit of both that. So yeah, I started paddleboarding about 15 years ago, started in the surf, based down in the southwest. And with all of these sort of things, as is my way, I get really into it, lots of surfing, and then got a race board and got into downwind um, and open exploration. Not super excited about racing and things like that from a personal perspective. I just you know, the sea is where it's at for me, open ocean, exploration, surf, open crossings, all of that kind of good stuff. I've spent a lot of time getting blown around on a stand-up paddleboard in different locations around around the world. I've been fortunate enough to paddleboard in lots of different places around the globe, which is um, which is great. So when the opportunity uh, arose to, to do a bit of research, obviously I've, like lots of people listening to this, I thought I had a reasonable grasp on the effects of wind on paddle boards, having done lots of that. Um, but it was just a bit of an idea. I've never really done any sort of formal research on on that. Obviously, I did a degree when I was at university. I'm a qualified PE teacher and have a physical education and sports science background. So I'm, I'm familiar with academic research, but I haven't really considered it in this in the in the field of offshore winds and, and paddleboards so when the opportunity arose I was really keen to uh, to get involved so that's a little bit about where I am and and how I sort of came to to be being blown out to shore for the past couple of months on a paddleboard but this time collecting data yeah um, <laughs> thank you for that and uh, I think um, one of the things I probably want to do is just talk about the the outline of the of the research and you know British Canoeing have commissioned several pieces of research um, to, to happen in, in the area of standard paddleboard because it's one of the areas that actually hasn't got huge amounts of, of research to, to back up decisions being made. And what's really important is that we base a lot of our, our qualifications and our awards and the safety guidance that we provide needs to be based around insight and evidence and hence why, you know, quite a few uh, research projects are going on at the moment that we sponsored this particular research about offshore winds can you provide us the purpose and, and the why behind this particular research and why it's so prevalent sure i mean like like lots of people again listening to this you know we've heard of stand-up paddleboarders rescued by rnli and you know it seems to sort of pop up with a bit of regularity and anecdotally paddling on the bristol channel i've given you know a reasonable bit of assistance over the years to people that have got a bit caught out so there's kind of been a bit of a bit of a feeling that that there was a problem there but the most recent rnli figures that were published are 
are startling really. So there's there's been a 422% increase in the number of RNLI lifeguard rescues. And in terms of what that looks like in terms of numbers, and this is that's just for stand-up paddleboarding, by the way. That's you know, there's other rescues that are taking place there. In 2018, there were 247 rescues. And last year, 2022, uh, there was 1,290 rescues. So it's just a, a, a huge increase in that. And taking a positive from what is a real negative is it does show that, that there are more people out there getting involved in paddleboarding, exploring their local areas. And, and that is absolutely fantastic. That is, that is what we want. I don't think there are only 1,290 people that went paddleboarding last year and they all got into trouble. You know, this is a this is a, a small percentage of, of a large number of people that are out there doing it. And the um, National Water Sports Participation Survey um, echoes that as well. But a huge increase. There's also a 20% increase in the number of lifeboat rescues as well. And over that time period, just that relatively short time period of five years, the RNLI, again, using RNLI figures, there were 77 lives saved mm -hmm. over that five-year period. And half of those came just last year in 2022. So you could imagine a graph in your mind's eye there. We're seeing a sharp uptick. And the signs are that that isn't leveling off or, or plateauing or even, or even dropping. Um, yeah, obviously, we don't have this year's figures. And it may well be that we are getting to a leveling point. But as it stands at the moment, we're seeing a year-on-year -year increase. Um, and last year, there was a significant increase in the number of um, not just lives saved, but number of incidents that, that came. So that was kind of the, the backdrop of, of this research. And so, so that on its own shows that stand-up paddleboards are susceptible to being blown offshore, but no one really knows you know, at what rate or what pace, and is there any sort of commonality? So this research was really about putting some numbers to what we potentially already already knew and as we go through this you'll see there will be a bit of well that's kind of what we would expect but there were also some really interesting findings that came out of the research as well which we're we'll get into another which wouldn't have come out anecdotally or through sort of experience i think they only came out as a result of some considered research into this specific area so that's how the research came came about and that's how the discussions evolved yeah. Thanks for sort of, you know, you know, framing that really well, Aaron. And I think, you know, one of the things, you know, you alluded to is that this isn't about us wanting to stop people from stand-up paddleboarding. It's far from it. You know, we actually are really pleased that the amount of people who actually, you know, participate in stand-up paddleboard, we just want them to do it safely and enjoy it. This is all about raising awareness, making people aware of actually, you know, the significance of what an offshore wind is and, you know, that our guidance you know is all around avoid offshore winds you know go out and enjoy the sport it's a fantastic sport it's a fantastic activity and it's just goes to demonstrate you know how many people are purchasing their boards uh, and then going out and enjoying it and you know one of the areas that you you know about and it's just you know hopefully to to give the listeners a bit of a background is you know, we are working very closely with retailers and around the point of sale information and all of that, hopefully, is another way of actually raising this particular awareness. You're, you're absolutely right, Darren, is people might be listening to this and they might go, well, I could have told you that over a cup of coffee. But 
as you actually rightly said, is we can actually put figures to this now, and we can actually say, if you did this, this is what will happen. You know, and, and you'll go through that in in the minute. So this is really about giving us the absolute concrete evidence and insight for us to be really confident in the advice that we provide as a, the national governing body for stand-up paddleboard. So um, let's let's explore the methodology, Darren. Uh, the methodology came about through quite a lot of initial testing. So it wasn't a, there wasn't kind of a desktop exercise in terms of, well, I think this is what's going to happen. So, and then, and then I go out and do the testing. There was a lot of initial research into testing and trialing to get that methodology as robust as it could be, bearing in mind that the methodology was taking place in a very dynamic environment. We were wind affected environments are by their very nature, um, unpredictable and the weather forecast might the wind forecast might say force four but that isn't it's not laboratory conditions that could gust up to five and then drop down to a two and then up and it, it, there's all of that kind of stuff going on so the methodology tried to make that as as kind of solid as it could be in order to then get those reproducible results in what is a dynamic uh, that dynamic environment so and the testing took place in two different locations uh, as in as an environment so we looked at inland because that way we could take away any positive or negative effect of the tide there's not obviously as the listeners will know there's no tidal effect on on an inland bodies of water so that would give us a true picture of the the absolute effect of wind on on a sub with no other external kind of influences there's some huge bodies of water in the in the uk as well and although if you drift long enough, you should on a on an inland body of water end up on a shore on somewhere. Um, that doesn't mean you're out of danger there. The right time of year or, or wrong time of year and being poorly equipped, um, and you're the, on the wrong side of of a large body of inland water um, on a beach or cliffs or something like that could have some real influences as well. So there is rescue data. Um, or information of people getting into difficulties in, on inland water as well. So, so has some practical application as well, but also was a great level benchmark for getting that initial um, data. We looked at the three most common uh, or the three sort of typical positions that a stand-up paddleboarder would, would be in. So that would be standing up, obviously, knelt down on the board, and then laying on the board or, or prone. Again, standing and kneeling, even the standing is, is self-evident why people are standing. But again, kneeling and laying down on the board, again, going through what was available, you know, what was being recommended by British Canoeing um, and other organisations about you know, paddling on your knees if, if the wind gets up or if you're in areas of shallow water or so it's a recognized position we didn't sort of invent the position obviously and then i did a some research into it using various search engines if i just say what do i do if caught in wind on my paddleboard for example and there's a body of advice there that that talks about laying down on your board and paddling prone with your arms sort of like uh, front crawl on your on your paddleboard for anyone that's not familiar with with that and that was globally that was uk advice and south africa and australia and and, and places like that so th those are the three positions that we initially tested in terms of what are people 
likely to, to be in. They're either going to be standing, knelt down or laying on the board. So we looked at the, the effect of um, offshore winds in those three positions. But the second part of it was how could we be more proactive? Is there things that we can do? Are there positions that we can put ourselves into which are going to reduce the effects of the offshore wind in terms of our drift? Can we slow down that rate of that rate of drift? Um, and the two positions were sitting on the board, half sort of halfway between the carry handle and the tail of the board. And again, that wasn't just a position that was that was a tested position. Um, a lot of these boards that we um, looked at, the sort of general purpose board, 10.6 to 10.8, um, were 32 to 34, somewhere even 36 inches wide. To sit in the midpoint of a board there, which is where typically people might expect to sit because that's where you stand and that's where you kneel unless you're a gymnast is really quite a, a feat of flexibility to, to have your legs there so moving towards the back of the board um to where the board narrows down a little bit made it a little bit more doable again this was we're trying to make any outcome from the research as applicable to the widest body of potential users it, we didn't see there was any point in in making something that would only work for a very small minority of super fit experienced paddleboarders because it's unlikely they were going to find themselves in that sort of circumstance anyway so we had the seated position legs in the water and then legs in the water using the paddle as a brake we called that the, the sup brake position and again there was lots of testing with that in terms of sitting at different parts of the board and doing different things with the paddle dragging the paddle behind, having the paddle out to the side, sitting on the paddle, those lots of different things. And again, that position was decided through testing as it required the least amount of kind of technical proficiency. There was no real requirement on paddle dexterity to be able to, to achieve it. Um, it was able to, I think if someone was looking at a picture, there's a little bit more to it than it maybe looks, but they could probably, if they just glanced at a picture or saw something on social media or a poster, and they ever found themselves in that position, by getting into that position or, or so a close approximation is still going to be significantly, is going to significantly reduce the drift over maybe kneeling or, or laying on the board, which is what the current advice um out there seems to seems to suggest so there, there was quite a lot of methodology there like i say started inland but obviously we went out onto the coast and to make sure those inland results were reproducible on, in a coastal environment obviously had to be very aware of safety we were literally you know doing what what we were trying to find out we were getting blown out to sea on stand-up paddle boards so there's certain amount of kind of ethical considerations there can't just have test participants blown out to sea. So we had to had to make sure the people we, we were using were significantly skilled enough and had experience in the environment and we weren't putting anyone in actual real risk. And in terms of the the sample size, I was the control. Um, so all of the testing um, except for um, one battery of tests that took place in the in the east of England that was in inland I was there as a, as a control sample so there was something to compare across all of the different environments on all of the different different days and then we used a, a variety of different sizes and shapes of people 
Yeah. So the lightest person was 67 kilos. Uh, the heaviest person was a, just over 110 kilos. Uh, and using it, the kind of manufactured sort of suggested upper weight limit of those general purpose boards, those that I could find sort of 110 to 120 kilos were sort of deemed to be the upper limit of, let's say, a 10, a 10, 4, 10, 6 board, 32 inches, 34 inches, something like that. That was the upper weight limit there. So I was keen to sort of explore that upper weight limit and and then using sort of a lighter person and then obviously a, a range of people in between those two those two points there Aaron, what you know those those boards that you were talking about then you know they would be typical for new and novice paddlers you know they, yeah. they, those are the types of boards that they would be using the inflatable kind the the kinds that they may purchase both from non-specialists and specialist retailers absolutely they were they were all general purpose inflatable boards and in terms of dimensions, that they were sort of typical for that. Same with the paddles as well. We used what would probably be deemed entry level paddles that would typically come as part of a package. So a lot of boards, as you, you'll know, Lee, are sold in the UK as a package, which is normally a sub, a pump, um, and a normally a three-piece kind of aluminium shaft plastic plastic paddle. So that's what we used in the testing for for this and across across that range we did 110 drifts so that's 110 getting drifted getting blown offshore timing recording those distances that was done 110 times across that range of uh, different people that we were talking about uh, just just a moment ago so it was a we got to a point where we were just reproducing the same results we weren't getting any significant anomalies within that, even though, like we said earlier, we could have a force four that was quite a gusty force four, and then you could have quite a consistent force four, but that didn't seem to, although it would affect the individual times or the sample for that day, it wasn't really having an effect on the um, what was being produced in terms of in terms of the pattern. So a huge, yeah, you know, 100, 110 tests carry out. I mean, it's a significant amount of, uh, of testing and, you know, really difficult, as I know, because, you know, we, we've spoken about this previously, is there was a lot of data that you just couldn't use because, you know, the winds weren't at the right strength. So it was really about making it as clinical as you possibly could and, and data collection. So there was probably a lot more than 110 tests done. Yeah. But actually, those are the ones that just sit sat within that sort of that profile. So, Darren, it's always you know the methodology and the you know the testing is the is the big things. But what were the findings of the of this particular? Because you you did say earlier, you know, some you would go, I could have told you that, and it confirms confirms, but with numbers. But you also said there were some interesting results that came out as well. So, um, yeah, what was what was the findings? I mean the. I guess the headline finding was the, you know, the existing advice from British Canoeing, RNLI, other organisations of, of not paddling uh, or to avoid paddling in offshore winds absolutely stands. And that what this research has shown is that we can reduce our rate of drift, but we can't eliminate our rate of drift. So if you are being blown into a busy shipping lane or into a, a an area of you know, dangerous rocks or whatever, you will still drift into that area. 
what this research has shown is we can we can reduce that and hopefully the rescue services will get to you before you get to that point of danger, but it won't stop you from getting to that point of danger. So that's really important. This isn't a how to, as you said at the start, Lee, this isn't a how to paddle in offshore winds. Absolutely, offshore winds should be avoided by, by, by paddle borders because you will still potentially end up in, in trouble. We can't eliminate that. That was the headline. And again, we probably already knew that, but this has just you know, made that, that really clear. And as I say, what we can do though is we can significantly reduce that drift which gives us a better chance of of the of the rnli getting to us in terms of the obvious results laying down on your board um you will drift slower than you would if you were stood on your board or knelt on your board and that's because of a you know you've got a smaller um profile that you're presenting to the wind so you're going to drift so that's that's probably no surprise to to people there but darren can i just ask you know that that was obviously the findings but you know something that jumps into my mind and you know might be listeners as well is but if i lie on my board i'm probably less likely to be seen surely yeah absolutely and the, the way offshore winds um present themselves from an environmental perspective is from the beach they're quite flat it looks potentially quite benign but as you get further away from the shore then the the sea state will pick up the fetch will increase and if you're laying on your board, then it's very difficult for for anyone to, to see from water level. So, yeah, you're not very visible yeah. at so all. We're, so we're reducing the profile. Yeah. So yep. we reduce the profile by lying down. So the results basically show that if you lie down, you'll drift less. Yeah. Standing up or kneeling. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Standing up or kneeling. The sort of current advice. Um, and again, if. The RNLIs, one of their more recent kind of info stories that they've put out was about uh, a woman called Debbie up in Scotland who was blown off to, out to sea on her paddleboard. Um, she laid down and tried to prone paddle back in. And using her words, she, she quickly became exhausted and just laid, laid down on her board. And that's kind of echoed in kind of the current advice, which is lay down on your board maybe you know try and if you can kneel and and paddle or lay down and prone obviously if you're laying on your board that's the most stable position you can you can be in because your you, center of gravity is so low but again people will quick, quickly fatigue if they're not used to to that kind of paddling so if they then stay laying on their board they are going to continue to drift at a, at a reasonable rate at a reasonable rate so that was the that was the sort of the obvious bit if you like the second part of the research which we spoke about was what could we do um, once we realize we've kind of maybe underestimated the conditions or underestimated our ability in those conditions and we are being blown out to sea and we've tried to paddle back to the shore we've tried to prone back to the shore and it's it's clear that we're not going to make that we are making progress out to sea away from safety and into potential danger what could we potentially do to to reduce that rate of drift to give the uh, rescue services more time to get to us before we before we get into more danger and that was sitting on the board with our legs in the water so introducing an element of drag into that so that did two things obviously that increased the drag but it also increased the visibility so the visibility of the person on the sup in in difficulty so our listeners will be able to to visualize that fairly quickly or uh, obviously you're 
vision is far greater if you're sat up you can look around you can look behind you far easier than you can if you're prone if you're laying face down on a board you can only really look to the left or to the right and you're at literally at water level there so from the sup casualty point of view they could maybe attract attention wave their paddle around all of that kind of stuff but also from a rescue perspective if you're sat up particularly if you've got a brightly colored buoyancy aid on or bright colored on your wetsuit or brightly colored hat or whatever it is then you're just that much more visible to to the rescue services once they're once they're on their way to you so that was the first position and we found that to be to have a significant uh, increase in the amount of drag compared to just prone and obviously massively more than being stood up but we've also got the paddle as well so again we looked at the what we called the sup break position um, and that came a about through again quite a lot of extensive testing we found there were different positions we could sit on our board um, as I said earlier and there's different things we can do with our paddle that will increase the drag but they did require a reasonable amount of paddle dexterity um, and experience so the sup brake position is is easy to adopt physically it's not very demanding and crucially it does free up it does give you a spare hand so you can use your mobile phone that you've got on a waterproof pouch to make that 999 call, ask for the Coast Guard. Um, and in theory, you could stay on the phone while they're coming to get you or organize that rescue. Or the situation might change, the wind might drop. You can then update them that you feel you're able to make progress back to the shore and you'll contact them once you get there. So it gives you that option. You're not reliant on using both hands to use the to use the the paddle there and that had a significant reduction of, of over 60 percent compared to standing alone um, and over 15 percent compared to to laying down on your on your board so and that's something that maybe well it definitely isn't out there in that kind of sub community in that space of of a position to to adopt should you find yourself in an offshore wind so basically is from what what you're saying is that from standing, from changing your your position on your board, from 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 standing to sat down on your board with your blade in the water, that it's sixty percent more effective at reducing the speed of which which you'll drift. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sixty three percent. Sorry, it's it's easy to kind of. I think I want to stress is we're talking minimums here. You know, this mm. when we're talking about standing on your board, obviously for testing that's what we literally did we just stood on the board whereas for members of the public they're standing on the board and paddling so when we talk about in a 30 minute time period you could drift up to a mile offshore that assumes that you've uh, you've got on the board at the beach and just stood on your board and not done anything now in reality you're you're paddling out of the bay because it looks exciting or you know whatever it is so that mile offshore in 30 minutes is relatively conservative and could be significantly more you'd like to think that people might have the awareness of that they were moving quite quickly and moving offshore having said that we've only got to look at those rnli figures to look at that that possibly isn't what's happening and people are very quickly finding themselves a long way offshore in what is a relatively short period of of time and did it did it make any difference to how much weight was on the board? So you know, in terms of person on the board or persons on the board, what what did that show? 
Yeah, absolutely. That was that was an interesting finding, actually, in terms of having that that sample size. I thought it, there might have been um, a bit of difference, but I was surprised at the significance that the larger paddler, when they were stood up, were blown quicker offshore. And obviously, they're a bigger person, so there's a bigger surface area. But I, you know, I didn't think the difference between sort of 110 kilo person and sort of a, a 70 kilo person, obviously on the on the ground, that's quite a difference. But I didn't think it would have that much difference on the water, but it, but it, it did. And the, the larger person traveled at a significantly faster time than the, than the smaller person. So that has implications for maybe families, adults paddling with children, for, for example. And those findings were, were reversed when we introduced the drag into that system. So sat down or in the sup brake position, the larger person would drift significantly slower than the lighter person. And that was simply, you know, without getting too technical, that was just, there was just more of more board, more paddle, more person in the water creating drag in the heavier test subjects than there were in the lighter test subjects. So again, that has implications for potentially families or partners where one's maybe heavier than the other um, around there. Now, obviously, more research would need to be done into that to get definitive figures and, and results out of that. But it was certainly significant enough to sh that, that it showed that there was a, certainly a consideration to be made if you are paddling in a group or in a pair or, like I say, in a family. And, and we did actually do some testing where we rafted up where we had um, a large person so again we obviously didn't use any children in the testing of this for ethical reasons um, because of the environment that we were working in but having a larger person sat at the back of the board and the smaller person sort of sat sort of just in front of them as you might envisage a parent and a child in the separate position that actually worked really well again the combined weight introduced more drag into the system so they did they did um, drift slower and also rafting up and trying to keep that raft together and dropping some paddles down into the water in that sub brake position did initially through initial kind of testing did seem to work but just to stress that would need a bit more look to, to get a definitive um, to get a definitive answer on that but but certainly enough like I say consider your group your group size in terms of if you're paddling with other with other people you will drift at, at sometimes quite significantly different rates to to each other so you know we've heard you know amplified how in-depth uh, this research you know outline the methodology you know and the findings that, that have come out and the results so what was the recommendations from this piece of work so the, the main recommendations, like we said earlier, was standard paddle boarders should avoid paddling in offshore winds. You know, this is this is conclusive. We've already sort of covered the reasons, the reasons why. If if you do find yourself, and you know, let's be honest, anyone that spends any time on the sea, things can change quickly, you know, despite all the very best planning and all the experience that you might have. And I include myself in here every now and then. The ocean will do something a little bit unexpected and, and could catch you out. So, you know, that's one of those things anyone could find themselves in this in this in this position. If you do find yourself in there, as soon as you realize you're not making progress back to shore, then adopt that sup break position. 
um, make that 999 call and, and make yourself as visible um, as you can. Mm-hmm. So the sooner you make that call, the sooner the, the rescue services will be on their way to you, the better, the longer the time um, that it takes, then the slower the response time will be or, or you know, the larger area they've got to search for you. So adopt that position, make that 999 call and yeah, hold hold on. Keep looking around, make yourself visible. Don't assume that you can be seen because you, you might not be. So, so that was the first thing that came out of it. Um, recommendation. Second recommendation is around your sort of self-sufficiency. So being able to rescue yourself on the water and part of that came out of prone paddling so the there's a lot of existing advice out there about if you are caught in winds lay down and prone paddle um what they don't say is that that does require some physical conditioning Hmm. and to expect the majority of people to be able to lay down and prone paddle five six seven eight hundred meters in into a force four wind which again the rnli data suggested was the, the sort of the wind window that most people got into trouble it is a big ask so that ha- there has to be some physical conditioning there so as well as going sup paddling you know putting a bit of prone paddling into your training or paddling um day it's it's good fun it's really good for your shoulders it's good cross training just gives you that it's kind of the seat belt version if you like you don't put your seat belt on in your car you're expecting to to roll your car you put your seatbelt on in your car just in case prone paddling is a a sport in its own right but from a paddleboarder's perspective it's the equivalent of your seatbelt it's just that little bit of there if you find yourself being blown offshore you're not making any progress being able to lay down and prone paddle that three or four hundred meters 500 meters back to the shore would be a really great thing to, to have to have in there and the recommendation is that that would we would start seeing that in sub safer courses through British canoeing, through leadership and coaching pathways, um, through British canoeing and, and potentially other organizations out there. They were the main recommendations. Okay. Brilliant. It's fantastic. You've been able to make time for us and um, explain the research, explain, you know, and give some real detail behind it. We have got an abstract of the research that is available, as well as guidance that will be found on the British Canoeing Award Body Digital Library. And as Darren alluded to, uh, Darren will be off will be offering Darren services to be able to support providers in, during their orientations and their moderations and hot topics that British Canoeing Award Body um, stipulate as part of um, update requirements for all providers. I mean, I think the the big last message probably just you know, before we say thank you for your time, Darren, is um, stand up paddle boarders, please avoid offshore winds. Go out and enjoy yourselves, but avoid offshore winds. Um, that is what we are be continuing to say. But uh, this is if if you get caught out, you can reduce the amount you drift. Um, and as Darren said, the stand up uh, brake position is 63% more effective at reducing the speed at which a sub paddler will be blown out to sea compared to a stand-up paddleboarder standing on their board. So, you know, really significant um, research and evidence and, and really appreciate your time, Darren. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. Remember to review, rate and subscribe.
Bye for now.